Welcome and thank you for joining our podcast. In celebration of Pride Month this year at Littler, we wanted to spend some time talking about issues facing transgender people and their families. This topic is particularly important to us given the current climate in America, which unfortunately includes an unrelenting wave of legislation targeting trans people. This trend is being fueled by a deliberately hurtful and untruthful commentary in the political sphere, which itself builds off misconceptions about our transgender friends, neighbors, and colleagues. To help us unpack some of these issues and also to discuss the undeterred spirit of trans people, we've invited Bennett Casper Williams to share some of his views and experiences. Bennett is a former Littler associate who now works in-house in labor relations at Amazon Studios. Welcome, Bennett. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Bennett, to get us started, would you be willing to share your story with us? Certainly. As Betsy mentioned, my name is Bennett Casper Williams. I use he, him pronouns, just so you all know. I am a recovering litigation associate, and I do now work in-house in labor relations. But of course, I am here today in my personal capacity, so my, my employers are not responsible for the content of this podcast. I am here because in addition to being a lawyer, I am also a transgender person. I transitioned in my early 30s after having finished law school and after starting my first job at a law firm. And yeah, it's been a really interesting experience. I am also a husband and a father. I have a 20-month-old son who I carried uh, post-transition. So I have a lot of interesting things that I've done since transitioning. I hope I can offer some perspective here as a lawyer and, and as a trans person. Absolutely. Uh, so let's talk briefly about the first intersection that you mentioned there, being a lawyer and being trans. How did you navigate becoming and being a lawyer as a trans person? I began my professional legal journey before I had really cemented in my own mind that I did belong to the trans community and that I was a trans person. I grew up in a time where like being transgender or talking about trans issues was not something that was widely discussed. I was in my early 20s and in college before I even met the first trans masculine person that I'd ever met. And it was something that I believed people felt called to from an early age. And, I, and the story I'd always heard was that if you were trans, you just always had this existence, like you were born in the wrong body. And that was not my journey, that, that was not how I arrived at my transness. And so for a long time, I just sort of buried it under the rug and continued about my life as a gender non-conforming cisgender woman. It wasn't until after graduating law school that I decided that I was going to give myself permission to explore whether or not I might actually be trans. I spent about a decade or longer thinking about that topic very seriously before I finally decided, you know what, there's no time like the present, I'm gonna go for it. I deliberately waited until after I had graduated and taken the bar exam to start a medical transition because I thought, you know, the bar exam is hard enough. I do not need to also be dealing with yeah. hormones and you know all of that stuff while studying. So I waited until that was all done. And then I began my transition and I was really nervous being somebody who had 
accepted a job at a big, you know, white shoe corporate law firm, mm-hmm. thinking about, you know, these people have worked with me only over a summer. They are not that invested in me yet as a person. And yet here I am starting this job, knowing full well that I'm about to, you know, make some major changes in my life. And then I sort of put all those voices away and I thought, you know what, I'm a professional. Being trans changes nothing about who I am as a person or what I'm capable of, and I'm just going to act like it. So Mm -hmm. I put my big kid boots on and uh, sat down with the managing partner of my firm, and I said, you know, this is what's going on. I'm going to transition. And I was really lucky in some ways that... (laughs) the firm I worked at didn't really have a transition policy. I don't think they'd ever had an out trans person working for them maybe ever. And so they really let me write my own playbook in terms of what I wanted to do and how I wanted to proceed, but I had nothing but support. And it turned out to be a very much a non-issue. And I recognize I'm incredibly privileged to, you know, work in a profession and as an employment lawyer. I'm like, really, mm-hmm. nobody's going to, nobody's going to really mess with you when you're an employment <laughs> lawyer. So <laughs> I figured I was in the best position, you know, I could have been to try to make that transition um, professionally. And it, and it really did fortunately work out in my favor. I always am reminded of the fact that I'm incredibly privileged in that respect, because certainly that is not the experience of most trans Americans. You know, statistically speaking, trans folks are more likely to be unemployed or underemployed. Trans folks often have chronic employment issues, often related to government documents, gender identity, not matching, you know, what folks are able to do in terms of changing their legal name, their legal gender, all of those things very much come into play. And so, of course, I have to verbalize my own privilege in being able to navigate those barriers myself. Mm-hmm. You've worked at several big law firms over the years, and you've been in-house at two large entertainment companies. Based on your personal and work experiences, have you seen any inclusion, equity, and diversity initiatives that were really beneficial for trans workers or workers with trans people in their families? Yes. I've, I mean, I've seen, you know, working in corporate legal practice and also in-house, I've been exposed to a lot of different sort of DNI approaches. And I will say one thing that has been successful in common in all of those scenarios is when employers empower their employees to form affinity groups or employee resource groups, as they're sometimes known. Affinity groups really give employees the opportunity to make connections to the parts of the business that directly interface with their lives as employees. So, for example, if you have, you know, even just a few trans employees, let alone enough to make a whole group, allowing them to come together to meet with HR or meet with benefits to talk about, you know, these are the real pain points in our experience as employees. You empower them to really become finders of their own solutions in ways that I think you know, having entrepreneurial employees is always a good thing, but you can also, you know, utilize them to help improve areas of your business that you may have a blind spot to if you're not a part of the community. 
you raised also an important constituency, which is employees who may not be trans themselves, but who have transgender partners or spouses or children, people whose benefits may be impacted, not directly them personally, but whose family members might be impacted by your policies. They're important to include in those efforts as well because they are your employees and employee attrition amongst trans or people with trans family members is incredibly high when you don't get things like benefits right. Mm-hmm. It can be you know, empowering employees to stand together in common interest to talk to the business about those things is such an easy solution. It's really been incredibly effective and employers would do well to support not just trans employees, you know, employees of all kinds of minority intersections to form those kinds of groups. Yeah, and just to to echo that, I'm the parent of a transgender child, and you know the point you raise about benefits is so important. That will always be a question for me at any job I might ever consider. Is you know this is this is very essential and basic for my family, and anywhere I want to be is going to have to be supportive of that. Yep, and I think it's you know as especially in younger generations, as younger generations are increasingly identifying as something other than cisgender, whether it's non-binary or whether it's trans, there will be more and more people who come to work for you who have trans people in their immediate families, in their close lives. And so even if it doesn't impact your employee body as much directly, it does to a second degree for sure. And that will increasingly be the case. So now that you've uh, talked about some things that work well from that perspective, from employer's perspective, on the flip side, have you seen any IED efforts that backfired or, or fell short somehow? And if so, what can employers take away from those misses? I think nearly all IND efforts are positive, so I won't say negative or backfired, but one thing that I think can be a drawback about DNI initiatives is when employers stop at the 101 level of diversity and inclusion sort of education or conversations. So it's 2022. If you are an employer who only offers sort of gender diversity 101 or trans, you know, trans employees and and how to interact with them 101. And you never get to the point where you're having conversations about intersectionality, you know, how somebody being trans and a person of color might affect how they come to work every day. Or you talk about disabilities and transness, right? If you never get past that very basic understanding, not only are you going to bore people, but it's going to come across very clearly that you're not equipped to have those higher level conversations. And I think those higher level conversations are what really give texture to understanding what it's like to be a trans person or a gender non-conforming person, because we all walk around at an intersection of so many different other identities that make such a big impact. And that's that's true, everything, nearly everything I say with respect to you know, trans and non-binary employees and engaging them better and more effectively could be applied to other minority identities as well. So this is broadly applicable. If you're never moving past those 101 level conversations, you just shortchange yourself. 
I think also, you know, where you're working to empower employees through affinity groups or employee resource groups to connect on the basis of minority identities by giving them budgets to put on things like educational program, you really start to see those more intersectional, those more nuanced conversations. And that's where the real gold is. Yeah. And I think if you don't, as you say, sort of push for deeper conversations, it, it almost makes it worse because it looks like you've, you know, it's sort of performative. You've thrown some nice language in a 101 type of program, but then not backed it up with anything meatier. Absolutely. And I think it also really allows for, you mentioned in the, in the introduction of this podcast, which I loved, is that a lot of the current strife that's happening right now in the targeting of the trans community in America is due to a lot of really oversimplification and misunderstanding by a lot of people about the trans experience and like what it means to be transgender, but also just like gender and biology. It's not really a 101 type thing to have a conversation about. And by oversimplifying it over and over again, we've kind of created this myth that gender really is binary, biologically speaking, and even that is not the case. So we're having to wind back a lot of like oversimplification already. We won't gain any ground by oversimplifying our DNI conversations. And, and you mentioned this sort of wave of legislation. There have been over 300 bills proposed this year that target LGBTQ people in, in general, but more than half of those have been targeting trans people. So what is going on with this proliferation? It seems to have been building over the, you know, the past few years with no signs of slowing down. Yes. Well, I mean, very truthfully and realistically, a lot of these bills are the result of a multi-state coordinated effort through think tanks that draft legislation that they can then farm out to people in different states. And it's literally like copy paste mm -hmm. in your own information. So make no mistake, it's not a... Um, a coincidence that all of this is happening at the same time and that a lot of the bills are basically the same types of restrictions or laws just with like slightly different wrapping. They're all being drafted by the same forces. That being said, I personally, because I understand that so much of this policy is based on a real misunderstanding of transness and humans and human biology, I see most of it as just frankly evil because I think the forces who are pushing these bills know that they are based on misconceptions and false science and they are really being pushed as a way to create a lot of noise and a boogeyman out of a group of people who really aren't a threat to distract from the lack of real work and the real progress and the real threats to, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that do exist. Why tackle real problems when you can create fake problems and then knock them out with one punch, you know? Yeah. It's a strategy that's been in existence for a long time. Trans people just happen to be the current group that's under the boot, but it's been, you know, every other group before us. Yeah, and some of the the misinformation 
that you hear, you know, you're left to wonder, are they doing this deliberately? You know, the, you, you know, use the word evil. And I think in some instances that may be true. And then in other instances, it could just be this relentless sort of perpetuation of misinformation, you know, and, and I feel like every spring when you see some of these bills start to advance in the different state legislatures, um, I've, you know, made the mistake of listening to some of the debates on these bills. And it is so disturbing to hear the untruths and the hyperbole and all of this noise about trans people that is completely ridiculous and untruthful. Yeah. And I mean, especially the thing that I think is the most sort of inherently evil are the laws that specifically target kids. Because amongst trans people, you know, trans children would obviously be the most vulnerable because they're, in addition to being young and impressionable, they're also minors. So they're at the mercy of the state and their parents and guardians. And I think that when laws go out of their way to attack a group of people that statistically are still fairly insignificant mm -hmm. and in terms of real problems are even less significant, it feels like a special kind of evil. And I, I wanted to actually take this opportunity to ask you, from your position as somebody who is cisgender but has a trans kid, mm -hmm. what is your take on the impression that people have about trans kids, for instance? Well, I, uh, it's, it's very sad and upsetting to me that there's so much information being spread about these kids. I mean, these are really sweet kids. And they, it, so many trans people have felt that they were different from a, from a young age, even though they may not have known what was different about them until they got a little bit older, or maybe they learned the vocabulary for it. So, you know, I, I see in, in my own family and in my son's friends, these kids who really do know who they are, and there is nothing scary about them. They, they just know who they are, and they've known for a while now, and they are willing to step forward and say that they are here. You know, they want some space. They are so pure, and they know that they are entitled to belong in society, despite the fact that society isn't being that friendly to them right now. So these, these kids are, you know, generally they, they're willing to think outside the box. They can see a future where they grow up and they, they just get to lead their normal lives and, and they can just go about their business and, and lead their happy lives and be left alone. But they're not willing to pretend that there's something that they're not. Um, yeah, that's well said. Can you talk about, so like one thing that really frustrates me about a lot of these laws is it seems to be that people think that someone just snaps their fingers and says, I'm, I'm a kid and I'm trans mm -hmm. and now I'm suddenly my entire life is going to be changed irrevocably. Can you talk to us a little bit like realistically, what's it, what's it like? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, from what I understand there are quite a few young children who sort of realize very early on, I have a friend whose daughter knew from about the age of four, really as, as soon as she could start expressing herself, you know, who she was and she wanted to be treated accordingly. And then for 
other kids, it, you know, they may not realize until they get to about the age of puberty, and you know, maybe they realize they were different before, and now this is really bringing it into very sharp focus very quickly. You know what they are feeling, what they've been feeling for a while, but this whole process is really very. It's very slow for them, and it requires so much deep introspection. They spend a lot of time thinking about this. Kids do not just wake up one morning and suddenly a light bulb goes off or something like that. That's that's just not how it happens. They put a lot of deep thought into trying to figure out who they are, like a lot of teenagers, but with this sort of you know added element. So it's it's really not a phase. A lot of people want to say, well, you know, what if it's just a phase and First of all, statistically, that's that's not true. There was a study released just last month and published in the journal Pediatrics. And I love this study because it followed um, 300 kids who were already articulating that they were transgender. So they're between the ages of 3 and 12 with an average age of about 8. And at the beginning of the study, they had already socially transitioned a little bit. So they were using nicknames and had adjusted their, you know, their hair and their clothes, things like that. And then five years later, when the researchers asked them again about their identity, they maintained that same identity that they had reported uh, five years earlier, and 94% of them maintained their same identity. And what I think is so interesting about that study, too, is that about half of the kids who did move away from what they had reported five years earlier, they were now living as non-binary children. So they didn't sort of revert back to the sex that they had been assigned at birth, but they were now, you know, fully realizing that they were non-binary. So, so statistically, yeah. it's, it's not true that, that it's a phase. And also it's, it's just very deliberate. It's really kind of inspiring because as a straight cisgender woman, I just never had to think about these things, you know, it yeah. just kind of floated along and everything came to me pretty naturally, but it makes you think, well, maybe I should have put more thought into who it means to to be me at my core. You know, these kids have done so much work up front to get to that point that it's really important to respect them when they tell you something so important about themselves. It's really important to listen and not be dismissive of, of what they're telling you. Yeah. I mean, all of us were at one point children, right? So any of us can remember back to those, you know, especially preteen years when most of us would have rather, you know, frankly died than to have a conversation (laughs) with our parents about any number of like serious or important things at that time. Yeah. It's, it's not something that kids take lightly. You also, you, the statistics that you mentioned in that study um, are interesting to me because I think they kind of mirror you know, percentage wise, at least anecdotally, my experience knowing people who transition later, you know, transition mm-hmm. not as kids, but in their adult years is that most folks stick with it. And you have, you know, some small number that will go, will say, like myself, realize that you're more non-binary after sort of making a transition. But, you know, that happens to grown ups too. It's just, once you open that can of worms and you start thinking about your gender in really critical ways, sometimes what you think about it just continues to evolve. Yeah, I have a real soft spot for the non-binary kids that we know in our community because you know, these none of these kids are, are doing this to be contrary or difficult. They just, they understand themselves and they look at the world and they don't quite see a space for themselves, but they're not going to just let that go. And even at a young age, they're stepping forward 
And I think there's something really empowering about that, even for me as an adult, to witness these kids take these steps. Yeah. I mean, speaking truth to power is such an amazing thing to see young people do, especially when the the majority of the world is constantly trying to force you into one box or another. Mm-hmm. And I think that truthfully, just trans people's existence challenges those systems of power. And that's why those systems of power push back so hard when mm-hmm. we gain visibility, when we gain, like the more normal and, and accepted trans people become in regular everyday life culture, the more the systems of power that try to keep, you know, sexism a real thing, you know, heteronormativity, a real thing, misogyny, a real thing. Those are the systems of power that really start to violently fight back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's what we're seeing with some of the political discourse and the bills that we're seeing is, you know, it really seems like they are trying to force people back into boxes that they've already abandoned. Yes. And, you know, luckily, I think that's harder to put back. Once we've broken a lot of those barriers, I think it's impossible to ever go back. But it doesn't mean that people aren't going to try to force it. Yeah. And so some of these bills have targeted sort of the, the access to health care, affirming health care for trans children. And other bills have targeted transgender youth and sports. So what is going on here and what do you see as some of the impacts on families? Goodness. Well, (laughs) where to start? Yeah, where to start? I'll take the sports question first, because I think actually the access to medication and the family impact is definitely more more your alley, um, given that you're the, the parent of a trans kid. So I'll go with the sports one. I think... Unfortunately, the attacking trans kids, specifically trans girls, note that these laws never mention or target trans boys and put a pin in why you think that might be because we're going to come back to it. These laws that are specifically attacking trans girls in sports are the biggest, most evil boogeyman of them all because you are really talking about a population of people that hardly exists. And by hardly exists, I mean most trans girls are not going to be putting themselves out in a position to challenge systems of authority in the sports world in the way like the way the dominoes are stacked against them right now this is not something that people who are not truly trans are not going through in order to compete and win Mm -hmm. the idea that trans girls are a threat to cisgender girls is wild and it's unsupported it's completely unsupported by any factual data And more than that, it's underpinned by the misogynistic view that people who are assigned male at birth are always genetically superior to people who are assigned female at birth, and that that inherent superiority stays with those people, regardless of whether or not they are trans, regardless of what hormone therapy they might undertake, et cetera. Mm -hmm. It's, It's false. It's a false understanding of human biology in a binary that doesn't really exist. It attacks a group of a a problem that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. It puts a super vulnerable, very small minority of trans girls who fit that bill at huge risk. 
And honestly, if we just invested more money in sports and equity for women, regardless whether they're cis or trans, we wouldn't even be having these conversations. Mm -hmm. Like there's so, so many levels of non-problem and inaction that combined that it's like, it's hard for me not to see these pushes and kind of laugh because of how transparent this boogeyman really is. Yeah. I just beg that anybody who thinks that this is a real problem to please like do some earnest internet searching and you will find that there's no statistical evidence to back up these fears. They are based in a sort of false binary that I just really like, we all know in our heart of hearts that it's not true. Mm -hmm. If you really think about it. And I also would be remiss if I didn't bring up the fact that back to the lack of men in this conversation is that the only time we are concerned about people having an unfair advantage in sports is when we're talking about women. In men's sports, we celebrate unfair advantage. We pump up and idolize athletes who have genetic unfair advantages over competition and sport, and that's perfectly fine. And it's because of the misogynistic view that unless competition is somehow regulated, women can't be competitive and compete for themselves. Mm-hmm. it's wild. We don't regulate competition yeah. in any other format. And I think it's really insulting and women, trans women and cis women should frankly be insulted that people are having this conversation on their behalf because it's based on a notion that's frankly not true. Yeah. Well, and some of the, the ramifications of some of these bills would affect cisgender women and girls as well. I mean, there's there's a bill pending in Ohio, for example, that would prevent transgender girls and women from playing high school and college sports. But that bill also includes a verification process that involves a physical examination as well as genetic testing type steps for anyone who, you know, is sort of identified as maybe being transgender. So that could be anyone. Yeah. And when you want to talk about which groups of people are going to be the folks who are targeted because they're bigger, faster, stronger, more capable, like it's going to be black and brown women. It's going to be non-white cis women who are probably more statistically targeted for being examined and being proven, who are going to have to prove their gender because of the way that these laws are written. It's absolutely, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's grotesque. nutty to think about. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, if there's anything that the USA Gymnastics and Ohio Wrestling, like we have many examples of really inappropriate scenarios happening when athletic individuals and doctors are not supposed to be checking genitals, I can only imagine. Like, right. no, it's all, this is all going somewhere no good. And it's yeah. going to be mostly cis women and girls who pay the price for yeah. it. Yeah, and to put a a little bit of context in it for people who may not realize, only about 1.4% of youth ages 13 to 17 are transgender. And of course, not all of them are going to play sports. And even among those who do play sports, they would not all be girls. So we're talking, I mean, easily less than 1% of high school athletes, for example, is, is what we're supposed to be talking about. Yeah. It's like, why don't we talk about things that actually impact 99% of female athletes in high school and college, which is lack of opportunity. Yeah. That's got nothing to do with trans girls. Yeah. 
Agreed. I'd like to hear from you about your perspective on the medical bills that are targeting sort of care for trans children, because my thought was by design, medical decisions are between a provider and a patient. So my, you know, just outside perspective is I'm so confused about how we could even be having these conversations from a legal point of view, but walk you know, walk us through how you as a parent of a trans kid are impacted by that. Sure. Well, I mean, as you can imagine, it's it's beyond upsetting and offensive on several levels. First of all, it's just disturbing at at its core because you may not be able to meet your child's physical and mental health needs, even though that treatment has been recommended to you by a doctor or other experts who know you and your child personally. So it kind of reminds me of the recent shortage in formula. You know, it's sort of that same panic, I imagine, when you can't get a very basic need met for for your kids. Then you're left, what do you do, right? I mean, you can't let your child suffer, but what are your options in reality? You don't want to let your kid down. Do you travel out of state? Do you move? Do you sue? You know, there may be some steps or maybe all the above, But all of those choices are also going to be constrained by your individual family circumstances. So maybe you have the resources to move and travel, but maybe you don't. Or maybe there's many ties that you have to where you live that you can't break. You know, maybe you're caring for a parent or you have other children who are doing very well in the place that you're currently living. So it's 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 really complicated and it's really tying your hands, even though you are their parent and you're supposed to be responsible for, you know, for safeguarding their well-being as best you can. You know, second, that the hypocrisy on this is just off the charts. If it wasn't so offensive, it would be kind of funny. These are, (laughs) these bills are proposed by the same folks that are yelling about parents' rights in, in different contexts. So I, you know, I should have the right to object to the reading list for my high school freshman's English class, but now suddenly I'm to be denied the right to oversee and make decisions about his, you know, his very personal and private medical care. It doesn't make any sense. (laughs) It is really funny when you put it in that respect, when you think about walking through life as a parent, it's like, okay, I am allowed to do this, but they think I shouldn't be allowed to do. Yeah, that's wild. And it's deeply insulting because you know, I have sort of free reign to make all kinds of decisions. We've made tons of decisions with our kids um, for them and with them. But, you know, suddenly when we get to this issue, my judgment is is in question. My motives are in question. And that's just really, it's just deeply offensive. Yeah. I think it's hard to talk about bodily autonomy when it comes to talking about medical rights and medical decisions without seeing correlations between the anti-trans movement and those who would seek to repeal a woman's right to choose reproductive care. Mm-hmm. And I won't even say women's right to choose. I'll say a person with a uterus's right to choose because I would also fall into the group of people impacted by anti-choice legislation mm-hmm. because Um, you know, among things in my transition, I have decided to maintain my uterus. So there you go. But -hmm. those conversations are never really about reproduction. They're about controlling a group of people. Because 
reproductive care is health care the way hormone care is health care. Mm-hmm. It's left between the person, the patient, and their doctor. And we allow parents to choose many other things in their life. But this is yet one more thing that we're trying to t- say, oh, but you don't get to choose that. It's mm-hmm. not about logic. And it's Apparently. not about it's not about logic and it's not about empowering people to raise, you know, healthy, productive children either, because if it was about that, then the laws, we would be spending time talking about things that actually support children, support child development, not seeking to control a statistically insignificant group of kids and, you know, preventing people from making their own decisions about their bodies. Mm-hmm. It's it's not about what they say it's about. It's just about control. Mm-hmm. it's hard to think about if the Supreme Court walks back row, what else falls into those same buckets? Yeah. And, you know, guaranteed on a more national level, it'll become healthcare for trans people. Yeah, we'd like to think it's hypothetical, but. <sighs> yeah, it may it's, not be. it's not. I don't think it will be. And that's, you know, seeing these connections between where forces who seek to control are trying to line up different groups across these sort of intersections. It's important that we keep our eyes open to that Mm -hmm. because it's not an accident. Yeah. Yeah. So so despite all these heavy issues um, (laughs) that are facing the trans community... (laughs) Jeez, yikes. Uh, there's, yeah. There is always a lot to, to celebrate within the trans community. You have your very beautiful young family to celebrate every day. Yes. So let's talk about where else we, we find support, give support, and find joy. You know, this is a really great question. And it's, it always makes me a little bit sad to answer because it's sometimes hard to come up with better concrete ways to say like this is some trans joy that has happened i think that i like to zoom out and think about all the positive aspects that like being trans and being a part of the trans community offers to the world i can find joy in the fact that because being trans is not an easy thing trans people are some of the most independent like go get them entrepreneurial folks that I know. I know trans people who they can hustle with the best of them and they're creative, they're inventive. Trans people Mm -hmm. are at the heart of solving some real problems with representation right now. I work in the entertainment industry and I take a lot of joy out of the fact that entertainment executives are starting to listen to trans creators and let them tell their own stories. And as a result, we're starting to get better representation. When we get better representation, we get more self-realized trans people that exist and it becomes a wonderful sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. I truly believe you can't be it if you can't see it. And so I'm trying to take joy in increased representation and where that's taking us. And I really appreciate that too as a parent because it's it's really important for the next generation to see that positivity. There's so much negativity and, you know, they're all on their phones. They can see it all unfolding in real time anywhere in the world. But any sort of, you know, sprinkles of positivity that we can spread in their day is important, whether it's, you know, 
texting my kid a meme or a cartoon or, um, you know, anything at all, it makes a really big difference to see them. We got to have, you know, good angels on their shoulders yes, to let them see I what's think, possible. I think that's a hundred percent right. And I think especially where trans youth are concerned, like I, I am a trans person who has a close relationship with one of my parents. I would be thrilled if I randomly got a trans affirming message or meme or cartoon from my, you know, from my parent figures, even though I'm a fully grown adult. Like, it's just nice to know that people are behind you and that they see you and they support you. And especially teenagers who, you know, they need all the, they need all the yeah. positive reinforcement they can get just because they're teenagers. Um, you know, having, having that reminder that not only do you see them and support them, but that you celebrate who they are. That's so magical. And I, I commend you and I just, you're, you have one lucky kiddo um, <laughs> to have a mom who at least recognizes that that's something that she needs to prioritize because that's oh. sadly not that common. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And I thank you for creating all the different things that you create and putting out so much positivity into the world and, and celebrating this community that really deserves to be celebrated. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I would be remiss if I missed an opportunity to tell folks that in addition to being a lawyer, I also am a, de a designer and an artist and I have a clothing line called Transist. T-R-A-N-S-I-S-T. You can find us at transistshop.com and there's all kinds of stuff I made for and about the community there. Yeah. And it's, you know, that's my kid's college fund. So, <laughs> <laughs> so please, you know, check it out, share and support. Um, I appreciate it. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for joining me today. We really appreciate it. I think it was a really important conversation for us to have, particularly this Pride Month. Um, yes. Is there anything else that you want to mention or discuss? No, I think we, I mean, okay. goodness, we covered a lot of territory. And I just want to say, Betsy, thank you for offering your perspective and for continuing to show up for your kid and our community in all the ways that you do. Mm -hmm. And thank you also to Littler for having me here. I appreciate you all so much. And, you know, we will, we will stay in touch. I'm sure we'll be back because there's tons more to talk about. I would love to. I would love to. Thank you. Thank you all. Happy Pride. Thanks. You too.